healthcare professionals working in myriad settings and specialties are seeing patients with heightened concerns about their own or their family members' social isolation and loneliness. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic separated many people from friends and family, concerns had been raised about a so-called loneliness epidemic. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Julianne Holt-Lundstedt, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. Dr. Holt-Lundstedt has co-authored a perspective article about social isolation and loneliness as medical issues. Dr. Holt-Lundstedt, could you describe the difference between social isolation and loneliness and how each one manifests? Yeah, these are terms that we often use interchangeably because, of course, they can co-occur, but they, they do have distinctions. So, for example, social isolation is really more objective. It's either objectively being alone or having fewer infrequent social contact, whereas loneliness is more a subjective feeling of aloneness um, or a distressing feeling uh, resulting from the discrepancy between one's actual level of connection and one's desired level of connection. And so, of course, when we're objectively alone, we're more likely to feel alone or feel lonely. But that doesn't always co-occur. And so we can be objectively isolated, but not feel lonely. And we can be surrounded by others and yet still feel profoundly lonely. But importantly, both of these have been found to influence our health, well-being, and ultimately our longevity. So, right, in that regard, you, you say in your article that both social isolation and loneliness contribute to risks for poorer health and premature death. So what health conditions can be affected by social isolation or loneliness, and how do they influence disease processes? Yeah, so um, they have been linked to a variety of chronic illnesses. The bulk of the evidence and, and some of the strongest evidence is linked to cardiovascular outcomes. But there has been evidence on other outcomes, including type 2 diabetes, other chronic illnesses, as well as more short-term kinds of outcomes, including uh, susceptibility to viruses and other infectious illnesses. And there are a number of studies that have helped to identify how it is that these can lead to such varied outcomes. And of course, there can be a behavioral element. So people who are more socially connected are more likely to have better lifestyle factors, but also are more likely to adhere to medical recommendations. But importantly, even beyond these behavioral kinds of effects, there is strong evidence that isolation and loneliness can influence biological factors. So just to give you an example of one of those, these have been linked to chronic inflammation. And as we know, chronic inflammation has been linked to a variety of chronic illnesses. And so this may be a potential common pathway that can help explain why it is that these have been linked to such varied outcomes, including physical health outcomes, mental health outcomes, and even cognitive health outcomes. You say in your article that marginalized groups may be at increased risk for isolation and loneliness. How might structural barriers affect social connection in those cases? Yeah, unfortunately, the number of groups that may be 
and, and individuals that may be marginalized is many. And what we know is that aspects of our social and physical environment can impact this. So for instance, access to parks, recreation, places where we gather are sometimes not equally accessed by all groups. Safe neighborhoods, um, many of these are unfortunately things that we don't all have equal access to and that this can disproportionately put some groups at risk relative to others. And I mentioned the the pandemic in, in introducing you. What effect has the pandemic had on people's experiences of social isolation and loneliness and what trends were evident before the pandemic began? You know, it's a, a really great question because so many of us associate isolation and loneliness with the pandemic because, of course, almost all of us experienced it to some extent during this time when we had to reduce social contact. But of course, we knew there was growing concerns well before the pandemic. And in fact, the American Time Use Survey, which is um, based on census data, has looked at objective time spent, minutes per day spent, and how they're spent and whom they're spent with. And what these trends show, starting in 2003 to 2020, we see trends in declining social connection across not only the family members, but also people in our communities, and increasing isolation. And these trends, as I mentioned, were occurring before the pandemic, but of course were exacerbated during the pandemic. And so unfortunately, while there may be this desire to get back to normal, it certainly will not be enough to address this important issue. And in terms of addressing it, you say in your article that responses to patient social needs can be integrated into medical care to improve treatment outcomes. So what steps can clinicians take to address these issues? Yeah, so we have good evidence. Um, so for example, a, a meta-analysis of 106 randomized controlled trials showed that when psychosocial support was integrated into existing treatment, that increased patient survival by 20% uh, relative to patients who received treatment as usual. And so we have evidence that this can be effective. But sometimes, um, of course, healthcare providers may wonder, how exactly do I do that? And so my co-author and I proposed a simplified framework, which we call the EAR. EAR being an acronym. Um, so E for educate, A for assess, and R for respond. And we propose this to be a simple way for healthcare providers to have something in their toolbox to, to be able to address isolation and loneliness among their patients. And so we look at the, you know, the E, the educate. This will include things like educating patients that social connection is part of a healthy lifestyle and that isolation and loneliness can affect their risk for illness and death. Also, it's important for patients to recognize that social connections can help them maintain their health and manage their existing medical conditions and adhere to medical regimens. The A for assess is to help healthcare providers recognize the need to document social support, isolation, and loneliness in, in the medical record. And that they can do this to help track their, their patients' progress over time. 
And then the R for respond is in essence, helping to recognize the need for social connection among other health risks and protective factors, but the need to actually integrate support from all members of the care team into patients' treatment, and where appropriate to offer referrals tailored to patients' needs and to partner with local community resources that may be able to help outside the clinical setting. Because of course, we know that while the medical setting can be really important, the medical sector cannot solve this problem alone. Finally, on a broader scale, what types of policies do you think would help support social connection and alleviate this burden of loneliness? So that's um, something that not only the U.S., but many countries are grappling with right now because of the crisis that we've been facing over the past few years, which, of course, um, was brewing much earlier than the pandemic, and looking to where policies may be appropriate. And it's interesting because prior to the pandemic, I think many people saw policy as perhaps inappropriate, that these are personal issues. But with the pandemic, we saw very clearly how policies are relevant because we saw how reducing social contact influences absolutely every aspect of of our life, including education, employment, health, transportation, et cetera. And so, of course, every sector of society can play a potential role in this. And so one aspect or one approach to take is to start looking at our existing policies, not only national policies, but institutional policies. What kinds of policies exist already that may be potential barriers to social connection? So on the one hand, we can consider policies that may help foster social connection, but we also need to consider where policies are getting in the way and creating barriers to social connection. And we can start revising these things. But of course, um, from a national level, we can start thinking about national health guidelines for social connection. So we have national guidelines for exercise, nutrition, and we may need similar kinds of guidelines so that this can help guide the public as well as the healthcare sector on what kinds of goals should we be aiming for in terms of what may help us optimize our health. Thank you, Dr. Holt-Lundstedt.